The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving that had power and electricity, and more than some of us did this past uh, weekend. Um, Today's show is is very special for a number of reasons. Um, When I first began working in the um, addiction profession, um, I was taught that alcoholism is a family disease, but then over the years what I found was that we don't really treat it as a family disease and and that families over the years have gotten what I think are very harmful messages and very mixed messages about what their role is in terms of somebody's recovery and what their role is when somebody's in the throes of their addiction. And I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. Um, her name is Donna Marston, and she's the author of Peeling the Onion, A Mother's Journey of Healing and Learning Through the Years of My Son's Drug Addiction and Recovery. Donna currently speaks at rehabilitation centers, and support groups about codependency, enabling addiction and recovery. I think what's really important to Donna is that she's an advocate for the recovery movement here in New Hampshire. Um, she advocates for rapid access to treatment facilities and for Narcan to be available for families and first responders in New Hampshire. She also is a public speaker and, and has um, a real passion to help other mothers and, and families who have gone through similar circumstances. And thank you, Donna, for being a guest today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, your son is the person who's in recovery, and I'm wondering if you could just briefly give our listeners an overview of of what your initial journey was on this path. From when I first found out? Yeah. Uh, Well, um, I suspected for a few years and um and then the last 5 years before he got clean and sober was a nightmare as a parent you know um i was blindsided i, I thought that i would know and and just i just didn't have a clue and so basically when i found out um the guilt and the shame that i took on I, you know, I blamed myself. Maybe I did something and I questioned my mothering and I went through a whole gamut of that and had pretty bad depression where I went to bed for about six months. When nobody was looking, I was in my bed crying. And there were days that I felt that if I didn't die of a broken heart, that I was going to end up in the psych unit because I was just making myself crazy. And I, I think there are probably a lot of people listening that can really identify with that because addiction is, 
affects the family, mm-hmm. I think in some ways more profoundly than it does the individual who's in the throes of it. Right. They can't well, see yeah. what you can see. Right. And, and I think for me, I wasn't self-medicating, so I felt the, the, the pain where he could go get high and he was out of his pain. But I think that as parents and loved ones, in my world, I became sicker, I believe, than he was, emotionally sicker than he was. And what was the, what was the effect on the rest of the family? Uh, well, um, my, he has one brother, and he was very angry because he was lied to. He was stolen from. You know, everything that uh, our son did to us was done to him. And and he was angry because he saw us hurting. And um, my husband works a lot of hours, and so he, he had to go off to work. And he wasn't as home as much. I was, um, I was home more, so I dealt with more. And how did this affect your relationships with your, your friends and the rest of your family? Eventually, people stopped calling. Um, you know, when I go around and speak, one of the things that I say that when people found out that I had a son who was addicted to drugs, people didn't bring me casseroles. They, they just kind of moved on. I, the invite stopped and, and, um, life changed in many different ways. Why do you think that is? I don't know if they're afraid to be associated or um, they don't know what to say. I really don't know um, what what it was all about. I'm sure it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I we we characterize this illness, which is a brain disease, as um, something about willpower. There's certainly a moral. Um, component to somebody who has an addictive disorder in a much different way than somebody who has diabetes and doesn't adhere to their diet and is constantly having um, insulin reactions or or problems with their health, even though that's very much, quote-unquote, a lifestyle um, chronic illness. It's seen in a very different way. Right, and, and if my son had was diabetic and he ate donuts and went to the emergency room looking for help, they would help him and they would probably find a nutritionist and they would put him in a program and his doctor would check on him on a regular basis. My son or anybody else, when they go to the emergency room or to the, you know any hospital, not any, but some hospitals, they're, um, they're not treated with respect. They're not given any programs. I know some young people who have overdosed were revived. They, they were observed in the hospital for, say, five to nine hours, and they were sent home. They were never spoken to about program. Nobody ever came in and, and gave them any tools or even had a discussion about addiction and what it, what it looks like or what recovery looks like. And no one's held accountable for that. The medical community isn't held accountable for that. Right, right. And my understanding is that they have very minimal education or uh, training in addiction. You know, that's 
that's true, but it's it's kind of ironic considering the amount of people they see that have addictive disorders. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, a long time ago when I got out of nursing school, I worked in the operating room, and we could tell whether somebody drank a lot or not by the amount of sodium pentothal required to knock them out. And everybody would say, oh, this person's a drinker, but I don't think it ever got addressed outside the emergency, outside the operating room. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know that much has changed. No, um, no, I can't, no, I don't think so. I, I, I just, I think it's a, just a different mindset where, you know, there are people who are, are doctor shoppers and they, and they go, they're looking for pills, but with the new programs where they can monitor who's doing that in the hospitals and with physicians, it's tougher, but when someone's coming in, they're, they're, they need to have programs in place or people in place that can have a conversation with somebody who is struggling with addiction. You're right. And in New Hampshire, we have very little resources if somebody does want to seek treatment. There aren't a lot of beds. We're 49th out of 50 out of the 50 states. We're the second to worst state for resources. However, I believe that we're number two for underage drinking and possibly overdoses in our country. Right. Well, I, on our license plates, it does say live free or die. Um, well, and it, maybe it should be changed to say live free, live drug free in New Hampshire or die. Yeah. Because we're not that getting would, the help. That would work. That mm. would work. You know, I think the other thing that people need to know is that in New Hampshire, the state is heavily dependent on liquor sales because all of the liquor stores are state-run, mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. it's really, in many ways, a conflict of interest for them, although I did read somewhere that if New Hampshire, you know, what they make in liquor sales is far less than the cost of untreated addiction in the state. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have an alcohol fund that's, spo- I think, 5% of it is supposed to go to resources, and in 14 years, it's only been funded once. So where's that money going? It's not going to resources. No, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think for, for our listeners, it's really important to understand, too, is that um, in the publicly funded systems, there's a history of, of monies being sent to the states from the federal government. And in 1972, alcoholism was decriminalized on the federal level due to the efforts of Senator Harold Hughes from Iowa. And as a result of his legislation, the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse was created and the National Institute on Drug Abuse was created. So from 1972 on, if a state decriminalized alcoholism, there was a lot of money that could come in directly from the federal government to the state government to develop treatment plan, treatment programs. So like New York developed detoxes and halfway houses and rehabs. Massachusetts decriminalized alcoholism and developed detoxes and halfway houses and, and residential programs that were basically, um, you know, federally funded through the state. Oftentimes people, Medicaid paid for those. And in New Hampshire, we didn't decriminalize until 1980. 
And that was when um, President Reagan came into office and created the block grants. So now states weren't dealing directly with people like, let's say, um, Program X wasn't contracting directly with the feds. The money was sent to the state, and now a state system was created to manage those state block grants. And so New Hampshire was like eight years behind the curve when they could have gotten money directly, then whatever was submitted from 1980 on, we had to share the block grant with whoever else was developing a program. And the block grants are a very complicated um, formula, and basically industrialized, high-populated states get the most money for the block grants. And so if you're a, if you're a rural state or you're heavily farmed um, state, then you get a lot less funding. And we're really down there for funding, too, as well as all the other statistics that, that you gave to us. So there's a, there was a lot of politics that happened that really caught New Hampshire um, unawares, if you will. And, and we, we were behind the eight ball to begin with, but we became even further behind the eight ball um, when the block grants were created. And we'll be right back with Donna after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. How many times have you heard this? I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. You are what you eat. I've tried every diet. Diets don't work. It's time to stop this kind of madness and start thinking and feeling empowered to change your health. Tune in to The Raw Truth with Chef Sharon Fraser. Join us weekly for thought-provoking conversations with world-renowned experts in the food, medical, holistic, sports medicine, chiropractic, and naturopathic health sciences. The Raw Truth airs live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back to one hour of time. Our guest today is Donna Marston, and we're talking about a mother's journey um, of dealing with her son's uh, disease of addiction and his subsequent recovery. And, you know, 
We were talking in the last segment a little bit about some of the politics and, and some of the lack of resources that are in New Hampshire, which I'm sure other states, um, I don't know of any state that's really uh, knocking it out of the park in terms of resources. You have been an advocate. Can you tell us a little bit about how successful you've been and, and what's it like to go to the state house to advocate mm-hmm. for, for treatment? Well, I, I I went in front of the Senate Finance Committee probably maybe three or four years ago when they were um, cutting the funding for um, mental health, and um, I think there was, must have been a thousand people there and advocated that they they don't do that, which nobody listened, and they and they did cut the funding, and um, but I'm I'm very involved in just trying to make a difference get people to listen. Years ago when my son, one of the times I took him to the emergency room, the first thing out of a doctor's mouth was, and, and he said, it, it, it sucks to be a, a drug addict in the state of New Hampshire. And once I kind of got past all the emotional stuff, I decided I've got to, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but one person at a time, just get out there and start talking to people and hoping to make a difference. And so I um, found New Futures, which does a lot lot of advocacy work in the state of New Hampshire. They're wonderful. They do uh, training to become an advocate. And um, I've also volunteered for Hope for New Hampshire Recovery. And they're a nonprofit. And their goal is to set up sober community centers throughout the state of New Hampshire and, and help to have more resources for us. And uh, so I'm out there to anybody who will listen and do what I need to do. And I'm now getting on a committee, it's like a subcommittee for the Governor's Drug Task Force that I'm going to be involved in. So, What did it take to get out and do that? Um, had you ever done any kind of advocacy before? No. Or anything? <laughs> No, no, I just, um, when I, I just found, I found my voice and I found my passion in life. I think sometimes, you know, things just happen for a reason and, and I was brought to, into this agenda so that, uh, to help because we need a lot of help and, um, I, I, I love doing this work and, and, encourage a lot of people to do it. I, I founded a group called Family Sharing Without Shame, and it's a, a parent meeting, and um, a lot of the moms and dads, they're, they're, they do the volunteer work with me. It's an interesting title. Um, how much shame did you encounter? A lot. It, it was paralyzing. It just um, kept me in my house, kept me isolated. Yeah, it was it was awful. What I learned is that a lot of it I did to myself with self-talk. You know, um, I created stories in my head that people were talking about me when maybe they probably weren't, but it was my own. I was doing it to myself. Mm. Had you ever known anyone that had an addictive disorder before your son? Had you ever experienced any of that? Um. I had a cousin, and, and my husband's family is riddled with it, mm-hmm. which, by the way, gave me a lot of um, finger-pointing because it was in his DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what 
we do. Yeah. You know, we point our yeah. fingers at, at people. We might, we've got to blame somebody for this. Somebody must have done right. something. And, and because I didn't understand that it was a brain disorder. I didn't understand it was mental health. I just thought if I loved him more or did more, he'd stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and how is he doing now? He's been clean and sober six and a half years, and he has turned his shattered world into an amazing world. He's a homeowner. He has a wonderful career, and he votes, and uh, he's living life in the solution and doing exceptionally well. So that's very validating for all your hard work. and Well, he, yes, but I, I do this work because I want to pay it forward in gratitude for my son's health. But I I started doing this before he really was doing well. He was doing better at the end, but, um, and then, then, um, as time went on, I, my journey just led me to where it is. It wasn't planned. It just happened. One of the greatest lessons I've learned through this process is to get out of my own way when, I read this book called Things Are Going Great in My Absence. When I learned to get out of the way and let things happen the way they were supposed to, it just got easier. Yeah. Yeah. And so this started with, I was invited um, to go on, uh, New Hampshire does have a recovery movement, and I was invited to go to a retreat up in Vermont a one-week retreat with people who are in recovery and people who wanted to do advocacy work. And that's how this, when this all started. And that was, I think, three or four years ago. So um, I know you had mentioned before about um, one of the things that you've, you've been advocating for is um, to have narc- Narcan available to first responders and families. Could you explain to our audience in case some of them don't know what it is, what it is and what they use for it and why you think it's important for everybody to have it? Sure. Uh, Narcan or naloxone is uh, what um, EMTs use if somebody has overdose to bring them out of the overdose of people. They've even, people who have passed, they bring them back. And, um, I went to a rally down in Rhode Island and was trained on how to administer it. And down there, people, the families can have it in their home. You can have a, get a prescription and keep it in your home. Because there's many times that I've had parents from my, my support group that said, I walked in on my child with a needle hanging out of his or her arm, or, and they weren't breathing. One of my moms, her son was dead. And she had to wait till the EMTs got there to revive him. Had she had this, she could have started the process. What we the the dose that the parents get is not nearly as as much as what the EMTs administer. And I think it's life changing. A lot of states this is legal, and a lot of states this is legal. That's right for families and first responders to have it. Police have it. Firemen have it. Right, and our EMTs have it, but our police, our state and local police do not have it in their cruisers, and they should. And it has found to be very effective. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
So what do you think the chances are of getting legislation passed that would allow Narcan to be more readily available? They're working on it. Um, I think it, I, it, it, was, it looked like it was going to pass this summer, and it ended up getting tabled. Um, so I think it's going to happen. Not sure when, but it, it, hopefully sooner rather than later because our kids are dying left and right in New Hampshire. Well, and I think what's interesting is that they um, there's going to be two medical marijuana dispensaries in New Hampshire, but we can't get Narcan right. readily available. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Once, once again, the politics of, of addiction. Not the same for any other brain disease, but it certainly is uh, a hot potato mm-hmm. when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. Well, the other yeah. the other thing that I've been trying to work on too is the nine eleven Good Samaritan Act. That if somebody is overdosing, and this happened again to you know one of the mom's sons, he was overdosing, and his girlfriend went to call nine one one, and everybody at the party tried grabbing her phone. They would because they're all afraid of getting arrested. If we incorporate nine eleven. The two people, she could have called, and neither her nor the young man who was overdosing will get arrested. And I think that's important in saving lives as well. And the thing is, some of the police don't like it, but they're going to, they'll get names. They'll, they'll, (laughs) in a way, they're getting, you know, information without having to go seeking it out. It's just, it's falling in their laps. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if, if there's a mom that's listening that wants to get involved in advocacy, what would you suggest she do? Or dad? If, um, from New Hampshire, call New Futures? anywhere, just anywhere. Um, you know, to call their local politicians, call your senators, call your state reps, and let them know that um, enough is enough. Something has to be done, and we don't have time to, to mess around. Our children are dying left and right. I know Senator Kelly Ayotte has a bill that is, is out there um, and it talks about Narcan, and it, and it talks a lot about what we've been talking about, and hopefully that will get passed. But I think it's slowly happening. It just isn't happening fast enough. Right. So, so Donna, what's your journey been like in this? You, you started out um, being very depressed, and, I, mm-hmm. and now, you're, now you're public speaking and you're testifying before the... Um, our representative. So what's this journey been like for you? You know, one of the things I say when I'm done speaking is a curse can be a blessing and a blessing can be a curse. The curse of addiction almost destroyed my child, my family, and myself. But in the end, we have received many blessings. And it has. I mean, the, the, when I see who my son has become, to go from where we were to where we are... I learned patience. I've learned um, I've learned so much about this horrific disease, and I've and, and through it all, I've met some of the amazing people. And it just it's it's hell when you're living it, 
but there, there, there are blessings that come of it. What role did treatment and like self-help play for, for you and your family? Well, self-help was huge for me. I, I did, um, I, I kind of did it on my own. I, I went the spiritual route, not religious, but got into my spirituality. Um, my son was in five rehabs, and there were many times where we tried to detox him and help him in recovery at home. There were times he did it on his own, um, and it's a process. I think for me, I had to understand that I I was making every time we sent him off to rehab, I was making rehab. They were the miracle workers. I, mm-hmm. You know, they're going to perform a miracle. He's going to be there 28 days. Come home, and we go on and live our uh, happy little lives. Right. And I was shattered when within months he would have a setback and start using drugs again. And, and what I've learned that it's a process. You know, there's going to be ups and downs, and um, sometimes they don't understand their addiction. They don't understand that um, if, you, if you're a heroin user that you can't drink. My, my son found out the hard way. He thought he could have a few beers. Well, eventually, those beers would weaken his senses, and he'd go back to shooting heroin. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Donna about her journey. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and we have a great uh, show today. We're talking about a mother's journey of uh, dealing with her son's uh, drug addiction and his recovery. And our guest is Donna Marston, who is an advocate for the recovery movement in New Hampshire. She's also um, the, co- the founder of Family Sharing Without Shame, a parent support group, and she's written um, a book called uh, Peeling the Onion, which is a great metaphor, a mother's journey of healing and learning through the years of my son's drug addiction and recovery. And Donna, this is, this is, a, this is a really nice little book, and it's very easy to read and very practical. And I was wondering if I give you some of the... Um, the subtitles, if you would kind of share with our listeners a little bit about that subtitle. Um, and, and one of them is uh, in terms of in Chapter 2, which is evaluating. You have, I'm as sick as my secret. What do you mm. mean by that? Well, when I first found out that my son was addicted to drugs, I didn't want anybody to know. I lived in fear of people finding out. And um, my husband and I are both in sales. And... You know, we didn't want to be blackballed in our community. We didn't want to be gossiped about. And so I isolated and uh, kept my secret. And eventually I became very emotionally ill. And and I think for all of our listeners out there, um, secrets are incredibly toxic. And mm-hmm. they do make people sick. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, uh, the truth is always a whole lot easier to pill to swallow, I think, even though sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow. And freeing. Uh, yeah. Mm. What about tough love or unconditional love? Because in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, tough love was really what parents were taught to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what your experience with that has been. Well, the, I would try tough love, but because of my fear, I was so afraid of my son dying that I never followed through. I made idle threats. And knowing what I know now, I did a lot wrong. Um, However, I do believe in unconditional love. I believe that we can love them unconditionally while setting healthy boundaries. Right. And and that's another... um, You you talked earlier in the last segment about your experience in going to rehab and having the fear before getting your son into rehab, then the hope that in 28 days this miracle would happen and life would go back to normal afterward. And I, and I think that's something that a lot of people share initially is that, that this is like an acute illness that we're going to treat it and then we're going to go on. And there's no chronic illness that, that is treated that way. There's, there's ongoing treatment. There's ongoing ex, um, exacerbation of symptoms. And when you talk about um, unconditional love... I don't know anyone that's really, truly ever has sustained recovery as a result of being threatened or tough-loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, think and it's that different people... for everybody. I think, in my opinion, there's no right or wrong way. We each have to find our way and what works for us. I knew that if I threatened with throwing him out, but I couldn't live with it because the fear of not knowing if he was dead or alive made me sicker. Right. So I I um, allowed him to stay here. Not and, for him, I, but for me. I did it for me, right. which is 
right. it's selfish, but it's what I what it's what worked for me at that time, and and it, and I think what happens to as we go as we go through this process, you know, we went through it for five years was was horrific. There were five years before that I suspected but didn't know. And we go, it's a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. You wake up and all of a sudden you're living in dysfunction. And we don't know what to do. And so for me, I, I just tried anything and everything, yelling, screaming, punishing. None of it worked. All I did was make myself crazy. Right. 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 I, I want to also just talk a little bit with our listeners, too, that, um, you know, you talked about the shame that you had as a mom. Well, the, the person that has the addictive disorder, they have, they're full of shame and guilt mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that it's important for families to do what you suggested, and that is have unconditional love with healthy boundaries mm-hmm. because um, that shame is what keeps people sick. That's right. And, and that when when you have a treatment center that's, that's, doing, that's making a recommendation that intuitively feels wrong to you, trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that's really important. Shame kills. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and and I think, yeah, you're right. They, they have so much shame, and then society shames them. That stigma, right. that's, right. that shames them. It's just right. horrible. Right. You know, I, I've said this before, is that I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, and when you're on a plane and you don't, you just don't want to talk to the person next to you when they ask you what you do. Mm-hmm. I always say I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, and most of the time people never talk to me again. <laughs> if I tell them I'm a nurse, which I am, they get talked to the whole flight. Right, right. So, you know, it's really interesting how people respond to you. Another thing that you have, um, another um, topic is, do I love my son, the drug addict, or do I hate him? Yeah, what, that... What's um, that? That was, um, there was a lot of hate. I confused my son with the, the disease. I called the disease the tiger. And um, so I confused the two because often I'm having this conversation or an argument, what I thought was my beautiful child, but I'm really fighting with this disease because it was present and he was lost somewhere in the bowels of it. Do I hate my son or do I, do I love my son? I hated him. I felt that I hated him because I was paying off drug dealers. I felt that I hated him because my my family's falling apart. I felt that I hated him. I'm paying bills that I can't afford to to pay. You know, I felt I hated him because the mess, the havoc, everything that was going on. But in clarity, and it took me years to realize I didn't. I never hated my son. I hated the disease of addiction. However, I hated my behavior. I hated that I became codependent and I became an enabler. I hated my participation in this disease. Because and you did that out of fear. That's right. And yeah, fear kept me engaged. And, um, and what happens is then we do a toxic dance. You know, it, it, there's a toxicity that, that, that we, we dance around, and I became part of it. I became one of his triggers. I became one of his stomping grounds. You name it, I did it. Another um, subtitle you have is Sober Siblings Are Entitled to Their Feelings. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. What happens is that, and for me, I became addicted to saving my son. It was like he became my drug of choice. My younger son, he was doing okay in school. He was doing good with, you know, in athletics. He was keeping busy, socially fine. I was putting everything into my older son and not paying attention. And I think that happens a lot. And then we were in crisis mode. It's like, you know, I, who has time? Because we're in crisis trying to save our children who are, who are um, abusing or misusing drugs. And I think we slight our, our, our sober kids. We've kind of put them in the back burner. And that's not fair because they've been lied to, they've been duped, they've been stolen from, but they don't have the understanding of what's really going on, especially if they're young. But he, my son was, was um, you know, in his teen years. My boys are 20 months apart, and it was tough, you know. And he was he was hurting because he saw us hurting, and... And uh, it just, it's, it's tough on them. And I think it's really important to pay attention because they need, they need love and guidance. So he had his own journey in all of this. My younger son? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was very angry, and um, I never thought my boys would ever speak again. It, it was horrible. It was horrible. And um, now my youngest son rents a room from his from his brother. Yeah, yeah, and they're best of friends, and they they um, do the same. Uh, they have the same career path, and they hang out all the time. And there's nothing better than listening to my two boys laugh together. That must be wonderful. It warms my heart. <laughs> Bring me to tears. <laughs> In your in your book, you talk about fear being the evil and corroding thread. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that the disease of addiction is is it's just it's evil, and and when we don't understand it, we don't know what to do with it, and um, it's just. Um, it, it's educating ourselves. We have to educate ourselves so we know what the the good and the bad is that comes with all of it. But yeah, it's a it's it's just this thread of evil that just runs through and and wreaks havoc with all of us. In terms of of your own journey, what was it like to let go, and why why is that hard? Because <sighs> it's our children. It's um. Because I took my job as a mother very serious, I, I, I wanted to do the best for my children, and um, to, I remember someone saying early on at a meeting, "You need to let go and let God." And I thought, you know, who the heck is he to tell me? I'm the mother. This is my job to take care of my son. And it was very. I, I, I had a hard time. It took me years to understand that letting go didn't mean I didn't have to ever see him again. It meant that I loved him enough to let him, to let him go and, and accept this, that this is his journey, but I could still love him. And we'll be right back after this commercial.
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Donna Marston, who is an author and founder of Family Sharing Without Shame. And I believe we have somebody that has a question for us. David, are you there? Yes, yes. My name is Dave, and uh, I'm a friend of Donna's, and and she's done a great job. And Mary, it's a great show. Um, Thank you. Too often, I think, that the disease of addiction the uh, person with the disease is the focus when probably most of the pain is felt by the family. The person that has the addiction, the, the pain is painful enough to get them into treatment, but the family is often often ignored. And I really think a couple solutions to that would be from the very first phone call that people make to to get help, detox, treatment centers, any anybody that deals with um, recovery, that the people that answer that phone from the very first call should be people that are sensitive to the, the pain and confusion that the family members are feeling when they make the call. And I've been on that end of the phone many times in my career, and I, and I understand that oftentimes the first question is what kind of insurance do you have rather then how can I explain to you what IOP means, what all these letters mean? Because really, those of us in the field speak a different language than the average mother or father. So I was just wondering what Donna's experience has been along those lines. And, and I think the solution would be to have people that are taking the calls on, on the admissions calls 
are more sensitized to the needs of the family from the very first phone call. And that's my my question, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, David. Well, he's right. Unfortunately, when we call, we can't call. If When I would try to call rehabs, they would say, my son has to call. So no one would talk to me. And, and that's a problem because often that's a healthy boundary that we can set that if you want to continue to live in this home, then you need to go to rehab and get some help. I'll support you in your recovery. And, and if, if the rehabs would talk to the parents, they, they can say, I, there's a bed here for you. And I was lucky enough that my, la- my son's last rehab, we had a horrific day. It was horrible. And um, I, just, I was desperate. I called around, and I found a woman that would talk to me, which is highly unusual. And um, there was a bed. And when my son came home, that's what I did. I said, here's a number. If you want to come home and stay here, you have to, you have to make an attempt. And uh, he, went to, he went that next day, and he's been clean and sober ever since. We got That's lucky, wonderful. though. Donna, where can people find your book? On Amazon. It? It's uh, Peeling the Onion by Donna M. Or they can go to www.peelingtheonion.co. That's my webpage. And um, and that's the best place for them to contact you too, if they want to contact you, is through your webpage. Sure. Or they and I also do a uh, daily just for today. I have a peeling the onion page on Facebook. Okay. And I have people follow me because I I post daily. I try to keep a positive light on things. I try to um, offer hope for parents. But also educate them about how this is, how this all works, and um, not to give up on your child. They're not bad people; they're just sick people, and I think that's important for parents to understand or anyone to understand. Um, I, yeah, I wish we could have like a national um, public relations media campaign that that just does that. Mm-hmm. It just helps people understand that this is an illness, and it's it's not. Um, it's not about willpower. Um, you, you make some recommendations for folks in your book. Can you share with us a couple of your recommendations that you think are really important? Well, I think learn to do? what I did um, is, is, first of all, and it took me a long time to understand this, but educate ourselves about um, the disease of addiction that's a mental health disorder. It's progressive and um, cunning and baffling and if left untreated, it uh, can be deadly. I think um, journaling helped me tremendously. I used to, when I was in bed, I would, I, I was, I got sick of being sick, so I decided that I'm going to just find something to be grateful for. So in the mornings, I would write a gratitude journal, and there were days where I'm grateful that I opened my eyes. That's how, that's all I could get out of me, and then eventually I could fill it up. And I used to journal about the behaviors, what was going on throughout the day. And when I looked back, I was surprised that I could watch the, the patterns my, and, and how toxic I was to him. I think reach out to uh, find support 
and it's nice to be in a room of moms and dads that have walked in your shoes and they, they understand because it's a lonely place to be. You know, we isolate and um, we have our pity parties, but it's really important to get out there and um, take care of ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves emotionally. And one of the things that catapulted me was I realized that the last time my son, when he was coming home from rehab, um, that I needed to find my own recovery. And I found a group called All Addictions Big Book Step Study Meeting, and I've done the steps just like my son did them. And it was the greatest gift I ever gave myself. But it's really important for us to educate ourselves. That's true. And I think it's really important for people to know that, that fear can be overcome by faith if you have mm-hmm. support. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, that in some ways from the moment their your child's born, there's fear. And, and addiction just compounds that mm-hmm. hundredfold, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think that this is a great book. And, and, you know, I think moms do most of the research in helping their their kids get into treatment. So mm-hmm. um, moms, moms can be very powerful, and uh, <laughs> and I think that um, sometimes it's an untapped re- resource that more treatment centers should acknowledge. Well, you know, get a bunch of upset mothers, and we're proactive. We're better than the FBI. Oh, yeah, I know. You know we get <laughs> stuff done, and it's amazing what we find out. So I think police officers, everybody should be utilizing the mothers and the oh, fathers. They, you know, yeah. we have a lot of dads that come to our meeting that are just, yeah. there's, it always seems like one parent's more codependent than the other. Well, you know, in, in at Westbridge, we kind of reframe the whole world word codependent because I think that um, in a lot of circles, it has a very negative kind of spin to it. But if mm-hmm. you're codependent, it means that there's something wrong with you when the reality of it is you're living in fear, you're scared, mm-hmm. you're, you're invested in the outcome of, of your son's or daughter's addiction and that you're doing the best with the information that you have to work mm-hmm. with. So I, I think sometimes people who are labeled codependent, it makes them more shamed. You mm-hmm. know? Good point. So, so we try... We try not to use that word around here very often. We try to reframe it so that we validate the fear and the love that, that family members have. It's just that what they're doing, um, maybe the boundaries need to be tighter. Maybe there are different options that, that they're not even aware of that, mm-hmm. that they can use, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But, it, but it does seem like one parent's more invested sometimes than the other mm-hmm. um, or has more resources available to them to cope with what's going on, too. Right. more resiliency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Right. And I think, too, one of the things that, that I, I tell a lot of the parents is stop creating stories in your head that you don't know to be true. And so I, when I was going through it, there were times my head would tell me, get out of bed in the middle of the night, get dressed, because the police are going to call to tell you that your son's been arrested or he's passed. And so I'd get dressed. And, and who's going crazy? I'm making myself crazy. So I had to learn to to negate that self-talk. And, and that's a great way to end our show for, for today. Um, negate the self-talk and find support for yourself. And, mm-hmm. and please get Donna's book, Peeling the Onion. 
Um, it's, it's a great little read, and I think people will find it very supportive. So thank you, Donna, and thank you for your good work. Keep Thanks. It Thanks for having me. We need Narcan and treatment in New Hampshire, so you've got a good, uh, you know, a good road ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. All right. Have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.